You will need your Old Testament tonight. We'll be in the book of Esther to begin our study in chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. Actually, I'll tell you that the idea that I developed into this sermon actually came about several years ago when we were studying the book of Esther and I made some notes and eventually those notes came up in my files for development in the sermon material. So this has been at work <clears throat> for some time. I'm going to start with some background and then we'll be reading from Esther chapter 3. Esther was a Jew living among the Jewish exiles in Persia. Now, the Jewish people had not moved into Persian territory for a better life or greener grass or a summer resort. Because of their sin, the Jewish nation had been driven from their homeland and taken into captivity first under Babylonian domination and then Persian. Now, under Persian control, they lived out their lives in crisis mode, but with hope of restoration. Some Judeans had already been permitted to return, but for those remaining in Persia, it was a hard life. Through a rare turn of events that obviously from our perspective was providential, Esther, this Jewish woman, became queen. And Esther was looked after, it might be said, from outside the palace by her devoted relative Mordecai. Now, there were some very bad characters in this time and in this place. And one of the worst was a man named Haman. And that brings us to our text in Esther. We are in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. It is always good to inquire when reading a biblical narrative or a paragraph 
What do we see that is wrong here? And in narratives that are written in this simple a way, it's right on the surface of the page what is wrong here. This man, Haman, who is elevated by the king, is a man who is loaded with false pride. He is self-seeking. He is immature. He is unfair. And we could stack up a whole list of adjectives as we read the narratives about this man, Haman, that are given in the book of Esther. But I want to single out a specific behavior, and I want to give a name to it and talk about it from Scripture because something is illustrated here that's valuable for us. Look with me again at verse 6. <clears throat> Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. In Haman's view, Mordecai was the offender in this particular case. Yet instead of just punishing Mordecai, the punishment was execution. He was determined to destroy all of Mordecai's relatives who were there in Persia, all the Jews. It was a mass execution long before Hitler purposed by this angry Amalekite, Haman. Now, I want to give that a name. I'm going to call that misdirected anger. Misdirected anger. Now, we do not read the narrative and accept that Haman's anger was justified, nor do we believe the proposed punishment fit the crime. But I want us to see anger out of control and what happens. Anger that is misdirected. I want to identify the extreme hazardous attitude we could fall into when anger is out of control. Now, you may look at this as Haman's anger toward one man but taken out on a whole nation. Or you may see this as prejudice against an ethnic group looking for an excuse to destroy all of them. But whichever perspective or whatever your phrase to describe it, it is misdirected anger. If there was ever an illustration of rage, wrath, fury, sinful anger, way out of control, it's here on this page in Esther chapter Three. Now, I don't believe any of us have the extreme egocentric and utterly evil disposition of Haman. You don't generally find this kind of evil among people who come out on a Sunday night to hear preaching. So I'm not putting any of us in the category of Haman, but if we are not thoroughly restrained by righteousness... If we are careless in monitoring our attitudes, if we are quick to anger and unguarded in our reactions, we could be guilty of misdirected anger. If not on this level of mass execution, yet on any level, anger not righteously measured 
is offensive to our God. So we're going to talk about misdirected anger. And I'm going to offer some examples for our study. What about anger with one member of a local church and the reaction is to nurture ill will and blame toward the entire group? This happens. Someone is upset with one person, one member of a local church, and rather than dealing with the conflict as the Lord commanded, there is bitterness and criticism and slander against the entire group. Now immediately we see that's immature. It's misdirected anger. At the least, adults recognize that as immature, but beyond our initial perception, there is more to see. It is unfair to the accused to not be given opportunity to reconcile. It is prejudicial against an entire group of people. And it just doesn't fit what God said about quickly resolving conflict before ill will spreads like cancer. Here's what the Lord said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some translations have angry with his brother without cause. But what I want you to observe in verse 22 is escalation. It gets out of control. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Again in verse 25, what's described is escalation. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, Jesus didn't speak these words and Matthew did not record them just so we would have something to talk about in a Bible class or read from the pulpit. This is real world, practical, essential instruction designed to keep conflict brief. Come to terms quickly. In the interest of emotions and unity and peace and God's pleasure, getting mad at one person and blaming the entire group is massively immature. It ignores the Lord's instructions about conflict, resolution, and attitude, and it falls in the category of misdirected anger. Getting angry at a person and blaming the whole family and turning against the whole family Having a grudge or complaint against one person and taking that out against the whole family. 
perhaps marking the whole family off as ruined goods because of the evil choice of one member. Once again, on the surface, it strikes us as immature and prejudicial, but it's not uncommon. If we are not guarded and disciplined in our thoughts and our reactions, we may blame an entire family for the sins of one member when there is no evidence of any wrong except on the part of the one guilty party. I have no right to assume that if you were guilty of some sin, all your family assisted and endorsed you in that sin. I have no right to such an assumption. If a husband leaves his wife for an adulterous lover, I cannot automatically assume that his wife was at fault. I don't know that. When a grown child runs away from God into the arms of the devil, I cannot just as if I knew assume that the parents were total failures and their parents before them and certainly their parents before them. Righteous people guard against these broad assumptions and reactions that have no basis in evidence. We may be guilty of misdirecting our righteous indignation. Do you know that Darrell really helped me out in the reading that he gave tonight? In 1 Samuel chapter 18, he didn't know I was going to do this, and I didn't know he was going to read that text. But it speaks of the close friendship of David and Jonathan. Now, what would be the reaction of many people to anybody in Saul's family, given the fact that Saul is after David? Well, many people would just mark off the whole family. David and Jonathan were close friends. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. You don't read those phrases on every page of the Bible. Jonathan was King Saul's son, the king who chased and harassed David and sought to kill him. David didn't turn against the whole family. David was mature in that regard. He was objective and humble, and he loved Saul's son, Jonathan. I must not punish and malign and speak against a whole family based on the guilt or perceived guilt of one member. Ezekiel 18 helps us about this. It speaks very clearly. A father can be righteous and his son unrighteous. A father can be unrighteous, yet his son makes better choices. Free will and individual choice ought to keep us from spreading blame throughout a DNA group. Another example. This one kind of hits close to home for me. You don't like one preacher, so you mark all of them off. You speak against all of them. I tell you, you can learn a lot about how people view your occupation when you're on an airplane. I asked a man one time flying from here to Florida in conversation, very pleasant conversation up to a point, and I said, what is your occupation? And he was anxious to say, well, I'm an account executive, and he went into some detail about his career and the products and the services 
that they offered and his excitement and enthusiasm about his career. And I listened very carefully and I knew what was coming. He came to a place where he paused and he said, and what do you do? And I said, I'm a preacher. And he said, oh, is that right? You hear that tone? And he went on to describe immediately one preacher that he knew who was apparently about one arrest warrant away from a life in jail. Well, there wasn't much conversation after that. I was being put in a category based on very limited experience and zero evidence. I was being put in a category with one preacher who was evil and unprofessional and corrupt. Now, I have to grant the point, and you do too, there are preachers who have disgraced themselves. But they've not disgraced the God-appointed function of sound preaching by faithful men. Again, we are way into unfair territory in our reaction sometimes, misdirected anger. Jesus said in John 7, 24, judge righteous judgment. That means you need to think as God thinks. You avoid the peril of lumping everybody into these large categories and then issuing that broad condemnation against the whole local church, the whole family, everybody in the occupation of preaching. We are people determined to be fair, aren't we? And obedient to God, and we avoid misdirected anger. It is still happening today that people get mad at one person of a certain race and transfer their indignation to the entire group. The predominant racial issue of the first century New Testament times was the long-standing separation between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Even after the cross, after Pentecost, when God intended all nations to hear the gospel, and God intended everybody from any nation or race to obey the gospel and then be together still, even among some who obeyed the gospel, racial prejudice continued. And much of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians addressed the issue with very clear statements like this. You are all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 Or in Colossians 3.11 that came up in our study today. There is no Jew or Gentile in this family. We're all God's children. So it is directly in opposition to God's will for us to embrace racial superiority and take our anger out on a whole race stemming from some issue that we might have with one person in that race. It's misdirected anger. It is unfair. It is immature. I was once called an old white guy by a young white guy. The funny thing is, he is now an old white guy. See, it makes no sense. And it's in opposition to those attitudes of fairness that God expects us to maintain. Anger that is righteously measured and contained. One more. 
misdirected anger <clears throat> with respect to age, sometimes called generational prejudice. Where old people just don't trust the young folks, those young folks, you know. Or the young folks don't believe the older people, they're, they're old, what do they know? That's generational prejudice. Let me stop here and say, is there any evidence God intended local churches to be places roped off by age and race and economics and education and experience? Now, there was a time in the 40s and 50s in the segregated South when there were roped off sections in many local churches. I'm sorry to say, as a child growing up in the segregated South, I witnessed that among brethren. Our black brethren would visit our meetings and be seated in the back in a roped off section. My father was instrumental in doing away with that in the church of my youth, and I'm so thankful that we don't see that among brethren anymore. But can you imagine doing that, not just with race, but all other artificially determined groups and morally neutral attributes? Old people over here, young people over here, the black ones over here, the white ones over here, the Hispanics over here. We'll put the rich in one place, we'll give them a pretty good place. And we'll put the poor someplace else. It ought to be offensive at the point when you form those images in your mind. Would you listen, please? I'll bring this to a close here in a moment in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. You remember Haman? Judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, let me say again, as far as I know, we don't have a Haman here tonight. 
who would act out evil, homicidal intent, intent, anger out of control. But it could be that Haman illustrates something we might be guilty of in a very less dramatic attitude and reaction. Misdirected anger. We guard against that by having the mind of Christ. Giving heed to all the instructions that God has given to govern our thinking, our attitude, our reactions, our restraint against impulse. I once found this definition of anger that I thought had some good about it. The emotion of instant displeasure on account of something evil that presents itself to our view. In itself, it is an originally susceptibility of our nature just as love is and is not necessarily sinful. It may, however, become sinful when causeless or excessive or protracted. That's the point we're working on tonight. It may become sinful when causeless, excessive, are protracted. As ascribed to God, it merely denotes His displeasure with sin and with sinners. I think that's good. Anger is not necessarily sinful, but needs to have real cause, not be excessive or protracted or misdirected. It was the Apostle Paul who said, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I hope this has helped you. Let's be standing as we sing.